Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 2. And we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 11, Romans 2, 1 through 11. And you'll find that on page 940 if you're using the church Bible. And I want to encourage you to have your own copy open, reading along there with me. And before we do read this morning, let's pray and let's ask the Lord together that he would bless the preaching of his word, that it would bear fruit into eternity. What we do this morning would have ramifications for our eternal well-being. So let's pray to him this morning. Father, we do thank you again for another Lord's Day. We thank you for another opportunity to sit under your word, to have our minds renewed by the scriptures. Father, we need the working of your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of the word this morning. We need to see and to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us grace upon grace in him. We pray that you would enable us to come with honest hearts, that you would free us from every um, attempt that we have to suppress the truth or to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We pray that you would do the great work, Lord Jesus, as the physician of souls, that you would do heart surgery on us this morning. We pray that we would meet with you and hear you and see you and love you more and trust you in a more deep way this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is picking up on the argument he began back in 118 about the catalog of depravity that marks all men, 118 to to verse 32. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Or do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practicing such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Well, one of the interactions that I have etched in my mind from the days when Anna and I did evangelism in the boardwalk in New Jersey was one night in particular we went out and normally we would expect to find hundreds and thousands of 20-somethings or under on the boardwalk in New Jersey. And on this particular night, mixed in with the crowd, there was an elderly couple sitting on a bench and we went up and did what we did with most of the people. We introduced ourselves and we said, we're out here sharing the gospel, and do you mind if we share the gospel with you? And this couple said, no, we don't mind. And so we went through the whole gospel plan, and we talked about how we've broken God's law, and we've, 
We asked them if they thought they were good people and if they had kept God's law. And we got all the way through the gospel and we shared with them what they could have in Jesus Christ. And when we were done, I'll never forget the woman looked to me and she said, it is so great that you guys are out here doing this. All of these young people need this. And I remember saying, all of us need this. You need this. All of them need this. I need this. You need this. And it's interesting because what that sweet and very upright looking elderly woman was doing was the very same thing that the Jews were doing to whom Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has stated at the outset that there is righteousness in Jesus, that there is a righteousness by faith, that if you will trust in Jesus from faith to faith, God will impute righteousness to you. He will clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus. He will give you that righteousness. And Paul begins to explain why we need that righteousness imputed. And he says, because the wrath of God is against all ungodliness. And from 118 down to 3.2, the Apostle Paul has given us that catalog of depravity, and he has said, here's what men are by nature. And last week we said we would be utterly mistaken if we didn't see ourselves in that catalog. We might not see ourselves on the surface there in some of those uh, explanations of depravity and men being given over by God to what they wanted in that manifestation of his wrath and sexual sin. And you notice there, especially in verses 24 through 27, we may say, well, I'm not there. And then we come to the end of the chapter and Paul rattles off one thing after another, after another, after another, unthankfulness, disobedience to parents, ungratefulness, unmercifulness, and we all say, uh-oh, that's me. I'm there. I'm in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And it's interesting because here in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is continuing on with what he said in chapter 1, and it's intimately tied to it. You can see that there in verse 1 from the therefore. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And what Paul is doing is he's being a pastor, Paul is anticipating an objection. He thinks here is a religious person, Jewish background. Here's someone who's grown up in the old covenant church. They have the scriptures. They've been given all the tutelage and all the nurture and all the care from God. They've been brought up. They have a a religious pedigree, as it were. And I can hear them saying, oh, yes, Paul, I agree. All those people, they're all under God's wrath. And it's important for us to understand that what Paul does in Romans 1, when he sets out the description of rebellion and depravity, is not stand on the sideline and say, look at all these bad people out here, but he's giving a description of all men. And so now that one objection that he hears and anticipates of somebody saying, that's right, Paul, those people deserve God's judgment. Those people deserve the wrath of God. Those people get what's coming to them. And Paul says, oh, no, no, listen, you who judge another and yet practice the same things, maybe in slightly different manifestations, you're deserving of the same judgment. You are without excuse, just like they were without excuse. And what Paul's ultimately going to do in chapter three is come to the climax and say, Jew and Gentile, everybody, religious, unreligious, those who have the law, those who don't have the law, everybody's under sin. Everybody's without excuse. Everybody deserves the judgment of God. And you might say at the outset, Paul, why couldn't you just sum this up in a verse or two? Why couldn't you just tell us this in a verse or two? 
And I think the reason, which we'll see today, is that we are so bent on subtly defending any sign of righteousness in ourselves. We are so bent on subtly trying to think that we are better than other people in some way. I don't do what they do. That Paul takes the greatest length possible to knock down every bowling pin of self-righteousness. He is finishing off what he started in chapter 1. He is coming now and he is saying, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And so first, we're going to see this morning that the Apostle Paul is ripping off the mask of hypocrisy. He's ripping off the mask of uh, hypocrisy from religious people. Notice there that while he doesn't say that he's speaking to unbelieving Jews, it becomes evident, I think. Notice in verse 9, he says there will be tribulation, distress, and anguish for the Jew first, also for the Greek. And then notice verse 11 or verse 10, there will be peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, also for the Greek. And then verse 11, God shows no partiality. And then Paul will go on to specifically and explicitly address Jewish people in the remaining verses. And he'll say, you call yourself a Jew and you have the law and you think you have a better standing before God because you have the law, but you don't do the law. And so you're in exactly, and actually, I think he would say, you're in a worse position. You're in a worse position if you are in a church that has the word of God and the truth of God and yet in yourself think that you are righteous or in a better standing before God. And so Paul is ripping the mask off of the religious hypocrite. You know, it's interesting to me that people, and and you've heard this a thousand times, I'm sure, will say things like, you know, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, here's something you could say to them. The church does have a lot of hypocrites in it, and so God wrote Romans 2. God is about purging hypocrites. God is about ripping the mask off of all of our hypocrisy. And secondly, all of us have manifestations of this, which we'll see today. All of us fall in Romans 2 as well as in Romans 1. And when God, through the Apostle Paul, begins to rip that mask off, we say, "Uh uh-oh, I've worn that mask. I've been that person. I've looked at others and said, them, them, I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not like them. And so Paul says, notice there in verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse. Now, it's interesting because notice what Paul said back in chapter 1. Notice what he said um, in verse 20. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 20. Notice that Paul has said that all men know there's a God. All men know that there is a creator. All men know by virtue of being made in his image And having his knowledge within them, by creation, they know there's a God. His eternal power and Godhead are manifested. You breathe his air. You you borrow his capital. Even when men suppress the truth through laws of logic faultly, they are borrowing capital from God. They're using the brain he made to suppress the truth. And notice God says in verse 20, they know everything's clearly seen so that they are without excuse, so that it leaves men without excuse on Judgment Day. Bertrand Russell, we said, who said if he died and he was wrong on his deathbed, if I'm wrong, I'll tell God not enough evidence, not enough evidence. God says Bertrand Russell and you are without excuse. And so all of the nations that don't have the gospel are without excuse. And then notice here in chapter 2, very interestingly, he turns to 
the Jewish people, the covenant people who have rejected Christ, he takes up this argument that they're better, and he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are who judge another. Now, it's interesting to me, while I'm convinced that Paul is addressing unbelieving Jews of his day, that he doesn't use the phrase, therefore, you are inexcusable, O Jew, though I think he's speaking expressly to Jews at this point. But he says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, O man, whoever you are who judge. And what I think Paul is doing is he's taking away any title that anybody could hold on to to think that they're better than other people through what they happen to be by title, by category, by pedigree, by ancestry, by anything else. And at the end of the day, every Jew is a descendant of Adam just like you are. And that puts them on no better standing before God for righteousness. And notice what Paul says, in fact, as he takes up this argument, as he removes the mask of self-righteousness, he says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. What Paul says is, you are the criminal by nature. We're all criminals. R.C. Sproul, I like the way he talks about sin. It's cosmic treason against God. Cosmic treason. One sin, cosmic treason. We're all criminals. But when we judge other people and yet practice the same things they do in different manifestations, we're making ourselves the judge. The criminal making himself the judge, putting himself over God's law, saying, I'm not under it. I'm not subject to it. I, I, I by myself, am better than other people. That's the heart of self-righteousness. I'm not like them. I'm different than them. I'm better than them. And Paul says that, They are without excuse, and in passing judgment, they are actually condemning themselves. Now, we have to tread lightly here. We have to tread lightly because it's possible to take a passage like this and to say, Paul is saying, don't make any judgments about wrongdoing. That that could be a conceivable conclusion about what Paul's saying. That's right, we shouldn't say anything's wrong. Well, Paul just gave us Romans 1, 18 through 32. So clearly we can't do that. Paul just gave us the whole catalog of unrighteousness. Clearly we can't say Paul is saying you don't get to ever say anything's wrong. You don't get to tell your children, don't live like this. I don't want you hanging out with people who practice this. Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying you who are not in Christ, you who are trusting in your own righteousness and who are living in unrighteousness, And Paul will unpack this and say that the Jews were living in adultery. Now, remember, our Lord Jesus was ripping that mask off, too, with the Pharisees when he said, whoever looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery. So in that sense, everybody's really included in Romans 1, 24 to 27, that list of sexual depravity. We're all there, and Paul's going to tell the Jewish people here, just like Jesus did, if it's in the heart, you're living in unrighteousness. And it's in all of our hearts. And so notice what Paul says, passing judgments on others, making yourselves better than them. He says, do you suppose, O man, verse 3, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? I want to read to you, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave six points about how 
men by nature, and you have to listen very carefully, how men by nature very subtly hold on to self-righteousness. So reflecting on this, this is what he says, first of all. Lloyd-Jones says, sin introduces or can introduce a prejudice into our listening to the gospel, into our reading of the gospel. We come to the scriptures, we pick out what we like, and we do not notice what we don't like. This is exactly what these Jews had done. So one thing we can do is we can come to the scriptures and we could read a passage like Romans 1 and say, yeah, that's right, that's about them, and I like this, I, I'm not in there, and so, but I, I'm over here, or I see this over here, and we pick and choose what we want to read in the scriptures. We don't put ourselves under God's word entirely. We don't put ourselves under the totality of it because there are things in it that we don't like and we don't want to notice those. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, some of us sometimes tend to read the scriptures not so much to be enlightened and to be taught as to confirm our own theories, our own ideas, our own prejudices. Now, I want to make that a universal statement. We are all guilty of it. All of us are guilty of reading the Bible to confirm what we want the Bible to confirm. Some of those things are right, Some of those things are wrong. We can go to the Bible and read it to affirm us. That's what the Jews of Paul stated. Number two, so many tend to make us put ourselves into special categories and compartments. That's the outcome of the first. I'm a Jew. He's a Gentile. We're all given those labels. We tend to put ourselves into categories and compartments, and then we go on doing what I've already been saying. We find statements in Scripture to confirm us or buttress our position. So the Jews said, well, God set us apart. He gave us the law. We were in a special relationship with God. Therefore, we're better than the Gentiles, and we're in a right standing with God. The Scripture doesn't teach that. They took a title. How can we do that? I think we can say we're in a Reformed church, We're not like these weak sauce churches out here. I did just use weak sauce in a sermon. We're not, and it'll be passe in a year, so people will make fun of that. Um, We're not like these churches over here, and they've got wrong doctrine, and a lot of them do, and we've got right doctrine, and I read the Bible to affirm my right doctrine, and then I'm better than those people over there. Rather than saying, I don't deserve anything, and that God would put me in a church that preaches the truth the way it does, because I'm a rotten sinner, And I don't deserve any of this truth. And so we can very easily compartmentalize ourselves and make ourselves feel better just like the Jews did. Number three, Lloyd-Jones says, quite right, we say. These abominable sins, we see them as we walk down the street. We read about them in the newspaper. Nobody even has newspapers anymore. We're impatient with those people. We feel they all ought to be blasted out of existence. Let's just blast them all out of existence. All those people in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And then Lloyd-Jones says, we see it so clearly as it applies to others, but never in the case of ourselves. We tend to be blind to our own sins. We tend to be blind to our own sins. One of the ways we keep the mask on, and all men do this by nature, and even we who are in Christ do this from time to time. One of the ways we keep the mask on is we tend to be blind to our own sin. This is where Jesus really said to us, didn't he, to, that if we, if we saw the, that our sin is like a, a plank, like a huge mass in our eye, that if I saw the speck in my brother's eye, I'd be much quicker to, to focus on the mass of sin I know is within me, and I'd be a lot slower to point out that little speck in my neighbor. That's what Lloyd-Jones is saying, what Jesus said, that we tend to be quick to see it in others and not to see it in ourselves. 
Notice that Lloyd Jones then says, and listen very carefully to this. Number four, we are all experts at running away from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are experts at running away from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We run away from the doctrine of justification when we rely on anything or anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work for me, for me. When we, we rely on anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished perfect work for me, we are running from justification by faith alone because we're saying, I don't need the Lord Jesus. And when we fixate on others, we have a tendency not to say, I need the Lord Jesus. I need the Lord Jesus. Five, very quickly, when we we separate doctrine from life, what these Jews were doing was they had the law. They were instructed out of the law. Paul will go on to say, you think you're an instructor. You have all this doctrine, but they didn't think that it had to change them. They didn't think they had to be changed by it. They didn't see their need for a savior. They didn't feel conviction of sin. They didn't see their failings. They didn't also see that their life needed to be in accord with it. And so Paul says, look, you judge others, but you do the same. You're careless in what you do, and you practice the same things and condemn it in others. I have a great illustration. My friend, uh, best friend, calls me and tells me the story of a young man who comes to him, and, and for the first half of their time together, he's complaining about a really well-known theologian, uh, pastor, who often uses shock value tactics in talking about sexual sin. Um, and, and at times has probably crossed the line for shock value. He's in a very difficult part of the country and has taken that. And, and my friend tells me that his friend comes and he's telling him all about that and how terrible this guy is and how nobody should listen to this guy because he uses shock tactic when he's talking about sexual sin and, and ministers shouldn't do that. And then my friend said the second half of our time together was this guy telling me he's addicted to porn. Okay, that is Romans 2. That's Romans 2. That's horrible. This minister shouldn't be talking like that when he's doing worse than whatever criticism may be justified in the accusation. We do that. We do that. When we separate doctrine from life, when we say the truth I believe should be changing me so that I'm focusing on godliness occurring in my life, and when that's not happening, we're going to sit back and we're going to launch grenades. Number six. And, and I'll, I know I've read a lot, but this is very, very helpful. Lloyd-Jones concludes his argument by saying there's a persistence with which we tend to defend ourselves. There's a persistence with which we tend to defend ourselves. We start with one position, then the argument knocks it down, and we jump to another The Jews started with the position that they were Jews. They relied on the goodness and mercy of God, then on the law, then on the ceremony. We will clutch at any straw. And so what Lloyd-Jones is doing is he's looking at this passage and he's seeing Paul take out one defense after another after another where anybody could try to hold on to to say, I am righteous in myself. I am better than somebody else. And so that comes home to us with full force here. And notice, secondly, that In uncovering the hypocrisy, Paul then moves to explain what the hypocrite is missing. Not only is hypocrites, not only are hypocrites missing the conviction of sin, the focus on their own need for a savior, but secondly, notice this in verse four, 
Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, what what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying that those who judge other people out here and say, they're really bad, they deserve the judgment of God, hooray, judge them, hooray for us, no judgment, that they have forgotten that God hasn't already judged everybody in the world because God is very merciful and patient and that God is wanting men to come to repentance. And the very fact that God allows everything in Romans 1, the fact that God allows that is because God is calling sinners to come to the Savior. God is very long-suffering. He's kind. He makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the godly and the ungodly. The person that you despise most in your heart gets to enjoy the same sun that you enjoy. And frankly, none of us deserve to enjoy one ray of sunshine or one drop of rain. The Bible is very clear about that. Not one of us deserves one drop of rain. The rich man in hell couldn't even get a drop of water from the scab-infected finger of Lazarus. Not one of us deserves one drop of water, one ray of sunlight. And yet, for all that, God is so full of goodness and mercy. And what brings people to repentance, what brings the wicked to repentance is the goodness of God. I, I was met by a homeless man this week, and I've had a rule over the past not to give money to homeless people because there can be an enablement thing there. And, and some time back, I started getting convicted as I thought back about my life of rebellion and how many meals God provided for me um, when I was spending my money on exactly the same thing they would spend their money on. Then I heard a quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, were apparently walking down the street in England, and a homeless man asked Lewis for money, and he gave him some money. And Tolkien said, well, you know he's just going to buy alcohol with that. And Lewis said, I know. That's what I would do with it. And so we forget, we forget the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God to us and your caring for people that don't deserve things may actually be what helps bring them to repentance rather than judging I'm not like them. I want to say this. I have so much mixture in my heart over a passage like this. I was convicted unbelievably in preparation for this passage. I hope you're convicted by a passage like this. That's the point. We don't want to skip a passage like this and say, that's just for the Jews of Paul's day. No, Jesus warned the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Christians can fall into Phariseeism. We can slide. We can stop trusting Christ as our Savior. We can start fixating on the problems of others around us instead of saying, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read this quote to you. Um, and it certainly could be abused, but I think it's a helpful quote. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Romans, said this, the mistake of condemning others, though guilty themselves, is committed by all who are outside of Christ. For while the righteous, true believers, make it a point to accuse themselves in thought, word and deed, the unrighteous make it a point always to accuse and judge others, at least in their hearts. For there is an explanation The righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. 
They are eager to recognize the good in others and to disregard those of their own. On the other hand, the unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. The unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. Now, that can be abused. Paul clearly sets out what sin is. We're to call sin, sin in our lives and other people's lives. But the principle stands that if we understand that God's goodness leads us to repentance, we will be very kind and merciful to those who are still under his wrath, who are living in great depravity because we want them to know the same Savior we know. We've embraced it. We've been convicted of sin. We've felt our need for Jesus. They need to feel their need for Jesus. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. The loving kindness of God, the mercy of God, the bounty of God. We think if I just tell someone you're going to go to hell or those people deserve judgment, somehow that's going to convict them of sin. And, and Paul says, listen, one of the greatest ways God brings people to repentance is by being merciful to them in the everyday life things that he's showing he is good and that he is worthy and that he will redeem and satisfy only a good God. Only a good God would bring sinners to repentance through goodness. Think about that. A good God brings us to repentance through goodness. And there is no greater manifestation of that goodness than the cross. The sun and the rain are dust particle reflections of the goodness of God. And the cross is the entire universe of God's goodness. The cross is the universe. There are galaxies of goodness in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see that he died and took that sin for us, we are brought to repentance. That's how we repent of our sins. And so the Jews despised that. They wanted God to judge others. We sometimes fall into that, have to repent of that ourselves. And notice then Paul tells them, that the other thing they're missing, secondly, is because of their hard and impenitent hearts. They were storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. You know, I can't prove to you empirically that there's a day of wrath coming. I cannot prove that to you empirically. There is no scientific test that I can give to tell you that. But it's remarkable to me that the very people that had the scriptures that should have known that denied it. And Paul said in denying it, they were storing up like in a bank account, wrath. More self-righteousness, more unrighteousness, more wrath, more wrath, more wrath. And so we have to labor by faith to believe, just like we have to believe by faith the truth of Christ crucified and risen, we have to Believe by faith there is a day of wrath coming. We cannot forget that. And that all who reject Jesus Christ experientially are storing up for themselves, Paul says, wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of God's righteous judgment. Sinclair Ferguson says it's possible for us to sing Amazing Grace without feeling that grace is amazing. It's possible to sing Amazing Grace without feeling that grace is amazing. And the only way we're going to feel that grace is amazing is when we've plumbed the depths of something of our sinfulness and twistedness and corruption and depravity. And until we've plumbed the depths, we will not feel that grace is amazing. Until we wrestle and come to terms with the fact that I deserve 
the same wrath, we will not get that grace is amazing. We will not feel that grace is amazing. Well, finally, and I'll just briefly touch on this for time's sake, Paul will go on here in verses 6 through 11 to basically say that your life, if indeed you've had the mask torn away, if you've remembered that the goodness and mercy of God leads to repentance, if you've remembered that there is a day of wrath coming, there is a day when God will repay all wickedness, that your life should reflect, if you're trusting Jesus, that if that mask has been torn away, your life should reflect a life of pursuing good works. Notice this. God will render to each one according to his works, in accord with. They will evidence on judgment day that we were justified, that we were trusting Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus, your life should reflect it. That's it. If your life doesn't reflect that you're trusting Jesus, you're not trusting Jesus. That's the most basic syllogism I could ever give you. If your life doesn't reflect that you're trusting Jesus, then you're not trusting Jesus. And Paul would have you know on Judgment Day, the evidence is going to stand as a verdict before the watching world. God's going to render to each one according to, not on the basis of, according to their works. And then notice what he says here. For those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury for everybody. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Now, let me say this. We don't, we don't get to the end of this passage by saying, I'm going to start doing good works. That's not how we get it. It's not how we get to pursuing good and seeking for immortality and eternal life. We get there by saying, I am in Romans 1, 18 to 32. I am in Romans 2, 1 through 6. I am in both of those. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. God has provided salvation in Christ. He's provided righteousness in Jesus. I go to him. I trust in him. I cast myself on him. I throw, as the old writer said, all of my good works in a pile. I put them all in a pile. I throw all my bad works in the same pile, and I flee to Jesus. I put all my filthy works in a pile. I put all the good works I've ever done in that pile, and I flee to Jesus. And when you do that, your life will reflect. And when we see others who are living in unrighteousness, we'll remember what's happened to us. And we'll say, how could I be so judgmental? How could I speak with such disdain about others when I'm exactly like them by nature? Because I have forgotten the goodness and mercy of God that leads to repentance through the gospel. I want to ask you where you're at in this. If you, if you examine, honestly, if you allow the Holy Spirit to rip away the subtle defenses, do, do you see yourself in Romans 2? Do you see yourself at times heaping condemnation on others and forgetting that you deserve that condemnation, that God removed it in Christ? Do you long to see others drawn to the Savior? I think that, that would be Paul's pastoral import is once that mask is torn away, once we've trusted in Jesus, we continue going back to that. And God continues dealing with us. You know, one of you came to me when I started the Roman series and said, um, I went and I started reading Romans 1 because you said you were going to preach through Romans, and I found myself starting to judge people and think kind of judgmental thoughts. And then I read Romans 2, and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> That's why Romans 2 is there. 
That's why it's there. Let God do the heart surgery on us with it. Don't fall in one of those six categories that Lloyd-Jones put down. Don't fall in that subtle holding on to clinching at straws of, of self-righteousness. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we are all like an unclean thing. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And Lord, we are guilty of both living in and practicing those deeds of Romans 1. And also, Father, acting um, like the unbelieving Jews of Romans 2. We pray that you'd have mercy on us, Lord. We thank you that you are patient, that you woke us up another day, that you have sustained our life, that you have not treated us according to our sins, that you have given us day after day after day, that you are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent. And so, God, give us the same heart as our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to see most of all your goodness and mercy in him and in that call to come to him. Lord Jesus, please heal us of all of our hypocrisy, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.